What we'll start with today is, for the most part, a long quote with some editing and paraphrasing from the work of Father Horace K. Mann. The Synod of Rome in the year 897 was really something. Unwillingly and in fear, the bishops and other clergy were gathered together by the Pope's orders. But Pope Stephen VII had commanded that someone even more important attend the Synod. He had commanded that Formosus attend the Synod. Okay, so who is Formosus? Well, Formosus had been the Pope from October 891 until April of 896. And Pope Stephen commanded that Formosus be present for the Synod, even though he'd been dead for nine months. So the corpse of the unfortunate Pope Formosus, still more or less entire, but of course half corrupt, was dug up, clothed in full pontifical vestments, and placed on a seat before the assembly. A deacon was assigned to speak for the Pope and answer the charges laid against him while Pope Stephen sat in the judgment seat. That's right. A dead Pope. A dead Pope, dressed up, or dug up, dressed up, propped up, and put on trial by the living Pope. Now, in order to understand the charges that Pope Stephen made against Formosus, we have to realize that the ancient tradition demanded that a bishop remain with his flock through thick and through thin, and he could only be translated, which means moving him from one diocese to another, in the most exceptional circumstances. This tradition was obviously rooted in the idea of spiritual fatherhood, something that used to be important in the church. Okay, so Formosus was already the bishop of Porto. That's a diocese just outside of Rome. If you've ever flown into Rome, it's right there by the airport. He was, a di- he was the bishop of the diocese of Porto before he was elevated to the See of St. Peter. And in fact, he had originally refused the honor of the papacy and had actually fled to the altar of his church from which he had to be dragged, still clinging onto the altar cloth. Now, with all that as background, let's return to the trial. So the central charge laid against Formosus was at the time of his election, he was already the bishop of Porto, and therefore his election as pope, as the bishop of Rome, was invalid. Formosus was found guilty as charged. I guess the deacon didn't do such a hot job answering. And so he's anathematized. And worse yet... His ordinations were declared null and void. In other words, all the men that Formosus had ordained to the priesthood or consecrated as bishops were declared to have never been ordained. Of course, that means that none of their masses would have actually been masses. None of the absolutions of confessional would have actually absolved anybody of any sin. None of the anointings would have actually been anointings, etc., 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 then they began abusing Formosus' dead body. It was stripped of its sacred vestments, put in lay clothing. Then they actually cut off the three fingers of his right hand that he used to use to impart the papal blessing while he was still alive. By the order of Stephen, he was then buried in ground reserved for pilgrims. 
As his body was being dragged away for burial, flesh, fresh blood was flowing out of its mouth on the pavement. Shortly thereafter, he was dug up again, and this time thrown into the Tiber. That's the river that flows through Rome. Although some blame Pope Stephen for this, it seems more likely this was done by treasure hunters looking for valuables. The night Formosus was thrown into the Tiber, a huge storm broke out over the city, and the Tiber began to flood. The corpse was carried along by the rushing river until it was finally thrown up onto the bank near Porto. Three days later, Formosus appeared in a vision to a monk and asked him to go and bury his dead body, and the monk did so. What became of Pope Stephen? A few months later, during an insurrection, he was seized, loaded with chains, cast in a dungeon, and strangled. In December of 897, Pope Theodore II caught wind of the burial of Formosus in Porto. So he ordered the body to be brought back to Rome with the greatest solemnity. So that they, were, they processed with the singing of psalms and hymns, torches, incense, and so forth. He was clothed once again in pontifical vestments, brought into St. Peter's Basilica, where in the presence of Pope Theodore, Mass was said for Formosus, and his body was restored to his tomb. One chronicler reports that he had it, quote, from most religious men of Rome, close quote, that when the body was brought to St. Peter's, it was, quote, reverentially saluted, close quote, by certain images of the saints. The next pope, John IX, who ruled from January 898 to January 900, rehabilitated Formosus. He called two synods, during which he condemned the acts of Stephen's synod in order they be burnt. He forbid reordinations of the bishops and the priests who had been ordained by Formosus, but declared to be laymen by Pope Stephen, and reinstated them to their offices. We're talking massive confusion. Unbelievable scandal. Sometimes it's really hard to believe the things that the Pope does or says. In the past few months, a lot of pious people have understandably gotten pretty worked up over statements made by our Holy Father, Pope Francis. The secular press and the mainstream liberal Catholic press are having a heyday. As for the conservative Catholic commentators, they seem to be scattered all over the place, ranging from doing out-and-out verbal gymnastics and cartwheels trying to explain phrases or explain them away, to falling in apparent discouragement, anger, or even accusals of heresy and modernism on the other side. And the priests have been hit with questions like, what are we as faithful Catholics to make of all this? How should we react? Or should we react at all? What if it gets worse? We started with the trial of Formosus, the point being that whatever's going on these days, it doesn't even hold a candle to that nightmarish situation. One poor pope ordering another pope, nine months in the grave, be dug up, dressed up, propped up on a chair, charged with crimes, with a deacon answering the charges, then the vestments torn off his body, they actually tried to tear his body to pieces, but it was too strong to dismember. The fingers he used for blessing cut off, and he's tossed in a simple grave. It's unbelievable. 
But it didn't end there. It didn't end there. Pope Sergius III, who reigned from 904 to 911, called another Roman synod by using violence, bribery, threats of exile, and other evils. Sergius III got the Roman clergy to once again agree that the holy orders conferred by Pope Formosus were null and void. Now this is turning into a colossal mess, because over time, many men had been ordained to the priesthood or consecrated as bishops by the men who had been consecrated by Formosus. And so now these men's ordination were suddenly declared null and void as well, which of course implied that none of their masses had actually been masses, none of their sacramental absolutions had any effect, that no one they had anointed had been anointed. You're talking about a mess. Now, many of them submitted to reordination, but as you can well imagine, the whole ecclesiastical world in Italy was in a tumultuous uproar. Little Giuseppe Sixpack doesn't know if his priest is a priest. He doesn't know if his bishop is a bishop. He doesn't know if his dying grandmother had actually been anointed. And the reason he doesn't know this is because of the misbehaviors of the popes. Now, if the church wasn't a work of God, there is no way we could survive something like this. Pope Stephen VII and Sergius III were certainly wrong and seriously wrong. A validly conferred ordination cannot be repeated. Wait a minute, Padre, did you say those popes were wrong? Yes, I did. But I thought the popes were infallible. They are in certain conditions, and we're going to cover that and a lot of other details about papal teaching in a later sermon. The important thing today is to realize that not one of the popes who are known or are believed to held false views on the conditions which make ordinations invalid ever tried to impose his ideas on the whole church. My friends, starting with St. Peter denying the Lord three times and fleeing from the cross, throughout history, there have been crazy things both said and done by the popes. We've weathered some pretty dreadful storms. And we'll weather this one too, at least everyone that doesn't get panicky and jump overboard. So supposing a pope says or does something that causes consternation, what should a faithful Catholic do? How should a faithful Catholic react? And should he react at all? Well, the first thing you do is to keep everything in perspective and remain calm. Keep it in perspective. Let's just step back from the concrete situation for a minute and do a thought experiment. Imagine that you're on a boat, and it's in a typhoon, so it's getting tossed around. you got the wind howling. You have 70-foot seas. And suddenly you learn, you're hanging on for dear life, and suddenly you learn up in the wheelhouse, you have a bunch of drunks having a fist fight. What are you going to do? Are you going to let go and jump overboard, or are you going to keep hanging on for dear life? You might not appreciate what they're doing up there, but who cares? It's a storm, you hang on. It's a no-brainer. That's what you would do. Okay. Well, by the grace of God, we're in the Catholic Church. That means we're already in the Ark of Salvation, and this ship won't sink, it can't sink, or we priests would have done it a long time ago. 
It just can't work like that. It's a work of God. So even if we had a bunch of characters going crazy up in the wheelhouse, the very last thing we want to do is jump overboard. We just need to keep some perspective, remain calm, and hang on. We need to keep in mind it's a salvation issue. In order to preserve our union with Christ, we have to preserve our union with our Holy Father, the Pope, we have to preserve our union with the local bishop. We have to preserve a union with our priest. That's divine hierarchy. The hierarchy is a divine origin. And that union is not based on how we feel about it. We have to have that union on Christ's terms, not our terms. It might be crazy up there in the wheelhouse, but all we have to do is hang on. Okay? So... If we've been working on our relationship with Christ, if we've been saying our rosary, keeping close to sacraments, if we're staying in the state of grace, then even when the storms blow and things seem crazy on the outside, we should be able to preserve peace in our hearts. We should have an inner, inner peace and a calm in our hearts. That's really important to keep inner peace. The Lord works in calm and peace. It's the devil that fishes in the stormy waters. Okay? So if the Pope says or does something that causes consternation, take a deep breath, say a prayer to remain calm, pray for the Pope, and relax. God's in charge. He hasn't abandoned us. He's not going to abandon us. That's just foundational. The first thing is we have to keep some perspective and remain calm. Second, We also need to keep in mind the Pope can't change anything that is essential to salvation. The Pope doesn't have the power to change anything that is essential to salvation. As we've said, later on we'll take a detailed look at what the Church teaches concerning the papacy, but for today it's sufficient to realize that the Pope can't change anything that is essential for salvation. He might make things pretty rough, but it won't be impossible. Stay on board. Third, get closer to Our Lady. During the Passion of Our Lord, who stayed faithful at the foot of the cross until the bitter end? It wasn't the Pope. With one exception, it wasn't the Apostles. During the Passion, the ones who stayed faithful to the bitter end were those who stayed close to Our Lady through it all. As we enter into the passion of the church, let's be very, very careful to stay close to Our Lady. Say your rosary, wear your scapular, practice the true devotion to Mary of St. Louis de Montfort or that of St. Maximilian Colby. And fourth, don't let yourself be scandalized. This is essential. Quick review so everybody knows what we're talking about here. What is scandal? St. Thomas says that scandal occurs whenever, quote, a man either intends by his evil word or deed to lead another man into sin, or if he does not so intend, when his deed is of such a nature as to lead another into sin. Close quote. So scandal is an action or a word which can lead another into sin. And being scandalized means allowing another's word or action to lead us into sin, okay? Let's take an example. Suppose a girl wears a bikini in public. 
By wearing something like that, she is guilty of scandal since her deed is of such a nature to lead others into sin, whether she intends to or not. Okay, so she's guilty of scandal. But every single guy that sees her and allows himself to fall in sin is guilty of being scandalized, right? So as soon as the man who is serious about saving his soul sees this girl, he'd have to quickly move his eyes and his mind's eyes away from her, okay? So the same principles apply to things like words and behavior of the Pope or any cleric. It's especially important we don't allow ourselves to be scandalized by anything the Pope says or does because this can very easily damage our faith or even cause us to lose the faith. So we need to be careful about that. We need to be also careful about what we say or think about the Holy Father because the fourth commandment applies here. And sometimes people don't seem to recognize that. Just like it applies to your physical dad, it applies to the Holy Father. We have to honor him. We've got to be very careful what we read and listen to. A lot of what passes for Catholic commentary, frankly, is just ecclesiastical porn. And that's the nicest word I can think of it. Okay? Just quit reading that book or that magazine or that newspaper. Quit going to that website. Quit listening to this or that person or this or that priest whose preaching is not leading us closer to Christ, who's getting us riled up and fomenting anger or hatred in our heart against the Holy Father or against the church. You need to pray for him and get busy reading things that will bring us closer to Christ and his mother. In order to keep ourselves from being scandalized, we could take the advice that St. Philip Neri used to give to his uh, directees, and, not, and he was alive during another time of very great scandal at church. St. Philip Neri used to tell his directees, I don't care what you read, as long as the author's name begins with S-T. Good advice. The inspired advice of St. Paul, you can find it in Philippians chapter 4, is perfect here. Be not anxious, but in everything... By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your petitions be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will keep your minds and hearts in Christ Jesus. For the rest, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever modest, whatsoever just, whatsoever holy, whatsoever Lovely, think on these things. That's the Holy Spirit. Be not anxious, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever modest, whatsoever just, whatsoever holy, whatsoever lovely, think on these things. One last thought on scandal. That great doctor of the church, St. Francis de Sales, says, quote, well, those who give scandal are guilty of the spiritual equivalent of murder. Those who take scandal, who allow scandals to destroy their faith, are guilty of spiritual suicide. Close quote. Well, those who give scandal are guilty of spiritual murder. Those who take scandal, who allow scandals to destroy their faith, are guilty of spiritual suicide. Okay, so if you're getting too worked up, Relax, don't worry, go have a cold one. Totally serious. Christ hasn't abandoned us, we might abandon him.
but he hasn't abandoned us. We might abandon him by allowing ourselves to get too discouraged and falling in despair, by allowing ourselves to become scandalized and jumping overboard and drowning in this terrible storm in the waves of apostasy, of heresy, of schism and scandal and sedevacantism. Stay calm. Keep your inner peace. Stay close to Our Lady. Don't let yourself be scandalized. Remember, the Pope doesn't have the power to change anything essential to salvation. He can make things pretty rough, but it won't be impossible. Stay on board. Let's close with some thoughtful comments written by Frank Sheed during the terrible chaos following the Council. Frank Sheed. In the criticisms uttered by many, there's a failure to see Christ as the whole point. So much in the daily running of the church they find depressing. The sermons, they say, take no one deeper into the reality of God or man. This priest or that cares for nothing but money. The sick are neglected. The old are rejected. The hierarchy know nothing of the emotional, intellectual problems which are eating away at their people's face. The curie is simply a bureaucracy using every trick to hold on to its power. As for the Pope, it all adds up to the institutional church with so many wondering if their spiritual integrity will permit them to remain in it. But institutional Israel the chosen people, as the prophets show it, was even worse than the harshest critics think the Catholic Church. Yet it never even occurred to the holiest of the Jews to leave it. They knew that however evilly the administration behaved, Israel was still the people of God. So with the Church. An administration is necessary if the church is to function, but Christ is the whole point of the functioning. We are not baptized into the hierarchy. We do not receive the cardinals sacramentally. We will not spend eternity in the beatific vision of the Pope. St. John Fisher could say in a public sermon, if the Pope will not reform the curia, God will. A couple of years later, he laid his head on Henry VIII's block for papal supremacy, followed to the same block by St. Thomas More, who spent his youth under the Borgia Pope, Alexander VI, lived his early manhood under the Medici Pope, Leo X, and died for papal supremacy under Clement VII as time-serving a pope as Rome had had. Christ is the point. I myself admire the present Pope. He's writing to Paul VI. But even if I criticize as harshly as some do, even if his successor proved to be as bad as some of those who have gone before, even if I sometimes find the church, as I have to live in it, a pain in the neck, I should still say that nothing a Pope could do or say would make me wish to leave the church, though I might well wish that he would. (laughs) Israel, through its best periods, as through its worst, 
preserve the truth of God's oneness in a world swarming with gods, the sense of God's majesty in a world sick with its own pride. So with the church. Under the worst administration, say as bad as John XII's a thousand years ago, we could still learn Christ's truth, still receive his life in the sacraments, still be in union with him to the very limit of our willingness. Close quote. Well, those who give scandal are guilty of the spiritual equivalent of murder. Those who take scandal, who allow scandals to destroy their faith, are guilty of spiritual suicide. In the criticisms uttered by many, there is a failure to see Christ as the whole point. We are not baptized into the hierarchy. We do not receive the cardinals sacramentally. We will not spend eternity in the beatific vision of the Pope. Nothing a Pope could do or say would make me wish to leave the church. Under the worst administration, we could still learn Christ's truth, still receive his life in the sacraments, still be in union with him to the living limit of our willingness. Christ is the point. Christ is the point.